good morning again to you. And um, I've been down in Colorado for a week with uh, my my family. It was nice to have a week of vacation. Um, I had I was there with all nine of my grandchildren, which is uh, was a wonderful occasion. And you remember that the oldest of them is six. So if you do the math, from zero to six, nine little kids can be a little chaotic, to say the least. It might have made VBS look uh, tame. I don't know, but after looking at those pictures, it didn't look very tame to me. But it looked like a lot of fun, and I had the same down in Longmont. I'm glad to be back here with you here in Sheridan at First Baptist Church. And they're going to address today from uh, the, the letter of Ephesians, written by Paul to a church in one of the largest cities of the world back in his day. I'm going to talk today about a subject that's very, very pertinent to our society today, namely the subject of marriage. Now, you don't have to be, uh, know very much to realize that marriage is in a mess in America today um, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, people, first of all, are getting married way later. The numbers are... Um, um, people are getting married five years later today than they did in 1960. So if people got married typically at 23 in 1960, it's now 28. As you know, um, people are not getting married. They're simply living together. And uh, that number, I think, has gone up um, seven, uh, uh, 17 times as often as it did back in 1960. So if 10 people were doing that in 1960, there are 170 today. So that's gone up at a, at a catastrophic rate. Um, so marriage... Divorce, you know the statistics. The statistics are very, very bad. Somewhere between 40 and 50% of marriages fail. However, they say today if you get married, your chances are roughly 33% that your marriage will make it in America today. 67%, they say, of the marriages will, will fail. However, of course, as you know, um, the old adage is true. Uh, statistics lie, and uh, liars use statistics. And um, so... <laughs> Um, maybe some of these are false as well. The statistics all tell us, however, that if you are of, have similar religious values, your, uh, the net, the, your chances of divorce are way, way lower. And if, in fact, you go to church regularly, your chances of divorce are even lower still. But... They say if you're a nominal Christian, by that I mean if you're a Christian that just kind of shows up from time to time, it's just a name you attach to yourself, you don't really seek to follow Jesus Christ, your chances of your marriage failing are just the same as everyone else's in the society. To be a nominal Christian doesn't help you at all. There's no help whatsoever, statistically. And again, of course, um, statistics lie, and I guess I put myself as a liar in that, in that uh, thing. So here are some of them. You can look at that in your, in, in your, um, just yourself. But um, marriage is, is a mess. And today we're going to talk about marriage. Um, we're going to talk about it from the perspective of the Bible. Now this passage today in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 and following, is the main passage in the whole Bible on marriage. It's number one. So if you can only pick one passage in all the Bible to focus on with regard to marriage, this is the passage. It's the main one in the Bible. And so I titled it this today, uh, Marriage Matters. We're going to talk about matters related to marriage, and marriage really, really matters. And one of the main reasons why marriage matters is because it is one of the crucibles 
in which God develops our character and he demonstrates Christ's character to our world. So marriage is very, very important. Now, um, of course, we're going to look today um, at the dirty word. The dirty word is um, submission. As you know, it's a dirty word in our society. We're going to see what it means, and it doesn't mean what people think. But this is how our text begins. If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another. Now, um, remember, this verse, chapter 5, verse 21, is at the end of the section we deal, dealt with two weeks ago. That section began with, be imitators of God. And then it went on to say that God is light, or love, first of all. And because God is love, we ought to be people of love. Then it says God is light, and because God is light, we ought to be people who show light to our world. And then it said God is wise, and we ought to be people who live wisely. And then to live wisely, it says that you need to be filled with God's Spirit. And then it's got four participles. Back to English class, your grammar. Participles modify a main verb. So the main verb is be filled with God's Spirit. Well, what does that look like? There are four ing words. You're supposed to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then the last of the four ing words is actually the first word here. It is not submit. It is submit in. That's really what it says, technically. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, this is one of the aspects of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with God's Spirit means you are a person who is submitting to one another. Now, who's one another? The one another in this passage is Paul's writing to a group of Ephesian believers in a church. This is one of the great mistakes that Christians make all the time. We take the commands of God's word and we say, well, we need to apply that to society. That's, if it is stated that it should apply to society, then you ought to apply it that way. But that is not what it says here. It says, this is for one another. So when we're in a society today, and the society says, well, that word doesn't, it doesn't fit, is offensive to us. First of all, they don't know what the word means. And secondly, God did not give this command to the people of the United States of America. They do not claim, our society does not overwhelmingly claim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not for them. Remember clearly what Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is talking about how we should hold one another accountable. And then he said, I did not at all mean that you should judge people of this world. God judges them. We do, we're not in that business. What would you expect people who don't acknowledge God to behave like? Well, they're not going to follow God's standards. Of course not. That's God's business. But it says our task is to submit to one another. Now, submit is simply a word that means place yourself under. That's all it means. Place yourself under. That means you are to be a person who sees your life as you come under people to lift them up. We live in a society in which the exact opposite is true. We do everything we can to be on top of people looking down. That's how society works. God says that is not the worldview of a Christian. The worldview of a Christian is we... We arrange ourselves 
under each other. Why? Not because we're doormats. We're not doormats. But because we are in the business of building each other up. Why would you want to do that? Out of reverence for Christ. You see, we have a higher responsibility. The, the goal of our society is your own personal peace and happiness for the years that you have on this earth. That's the goal. That is not our goal. Our goal is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ while we have life, to make life better for other people here and through eternity. Very different. Submit, place yourself, arrange yourself under one another out of your reverence for Christ. Many years ago, I was at a Christian camp, like Camp Bethel. It was called Honey Rock Camp. And Honey Rock Camp was in northern Wisconsin, and a person that lived there on the grounds was a woman by the name of Mrs. Edmund. She was well known because her husband had been the president of the school that I attended, Wheaton College. By the way, uh, Dr. Edmund, um, he, one of the things he loved to do was to preach in the chapel services. And there were a little over 2,000 students in the school. And, uh, but he had some heart problems. And so he wasn't able to attend chapel for some years, or so, some months, rather. But then he was feeling better, and he came to chapel, and he spoke one day. And his topic was, he was entitled, In the Presence of the King. That's what he was speaking about. And as he was speaking, he fell over dead into the presence of the king. As that's what he's speaking about. Well, this is his wife, his widow. And uh, I was with a friend up at this Honey Rock camp, and we decided we were going to go see Mrs. Edmund just to, to, to meet her, because she was known as a godly, godly woman, a woman of prayer. And so we went. Now, this friend of mine was about to be married later that summer. And so we went to see Mrs. Edmund, and uh, he told her that um, he was about to be married. And she said, Would you like me to give you some marriage advice? And we looked at each other and go, oh, no, here comes a sermon. We said, okay, yes, <laughs> expecting we'd be there a long time because she knew a lot about the subject. She turned to him and said, is she selfish? If she is, you better run. If she's not, you've got to catch. That's all she said. Is she selfish? I could just sit down right now. We live in a society, in a world, in which we live for ourselves. We're the most individualistic society the world has ever seen. Sociologists tell us that the dominant sociological characteristic of the United States of America is radical ontological individualism. We are out for ourselves only. We're number one. That is the absolute antithesis of Christianity, and it will destroy your life and your marriage. I can promise you. The opposite of that is we live for Christ. We live for Christ. We don't live primarily for our own peace, personal peace and happiness. Though, I'm here to tell you, if you live for Christ, you will never know happiness and peace like you would know with him. There's no alternative. And if you seek your own personal peace and happiness, I can promise you, you will not ultimately find it. And so the first thing God says is, now I'm going to talk to you about marriage, but I want you to see that the banner over all of marriage is arrange yourselves under 
one another. Why? Because you're Christians. Because you reverence Jesus. Because you follow Jesus. Because you're supposed to be in the process of resembling Jesus. Because we, when we leave this place, as we live among one another, we represent Jesus. That's why. And now it's going to turn to wives. And then it's going to turn to husbands. And then in the last verse, it's going to summarize it for all of us. Now, it's going to begin with the dirty word. The dirty word is submission. Submission, as I said, is not liked. Here's, uh, I found this one. My husband sent me to my room. A wife's lesson in submission. That's garbage. That's absolute garbage. But that's how submission is seen. Or it's seen like this. Here the poor woman is there with her husband reading, maybe out of a Bible, what she's supposed to do, and she's cringing. That is not submission. That's called garbage. This is even, this is double garbage. Submission. The husband is the head of the wife, and that's the way it is, period. Garbage. I like this one, actually. Happiness is submission to Godzilla. <laughs> Someone said, um, that's how our world views it. Well, why? Well, first of all, they view it that way because they don't understand what the word means. Secondly, because they don't know that the basis of why we do this is out of our reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the goal is the greatest personal joy, peace, and happiness we could ever find. That's what we're in for. And so today, we're going to talk about submission, and we're going to talk about marriage with husband and wife. Here's what someone said. Our society emphasizes equality. Mutual submission is a much stronger idea. With equality, you still have a battle of rights. Equality can exist without love, but it will not create Christian community, nor will it create a good marriage. With mutual submission, we give up rights and support each other. Mutual submission is love in action. Mutual submission will not allow us to promote ourselves and our own interests, but neither does it make us doormats. To be used by others. So today, husbands and wives, I welcome you to this text of Scripture that is what is called in the Bible a household code. Now in the Bible, in the New Testament, we have three household codes in Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Peter. Household codes were very common in the Roman world, and um, next week we'll show you some of them. <clears throat> Household codes were written by the leaders of the Roman society. And in that society, it was very, very rigid. You had the pater familias. The father was in charge. And so the household codes went in the following way. Wives, this is how you're supposed to respond to your husbands. Children, this is how you're supposed to respond to your father. Servants, this is how you're supposed to respond to your master. Those are called household codes. Now, the Bible gives us household codes with the same three groups. However, there's a huge difference. It does not say simply, wives, this is how you're supposed to respond to your husbands, but also, husbands, this is how you're supposed to respond to your wives. And it places the greater responsibility on the husband. And then it doesn't just say, children, this is how you're supposed to respond to your parents, but parents, this is how you're supposed to treat your children. 
That's unheard of in that society. A society in which a Roman father could kill his children without any legal implications. And then it doesn't just simply say, servants, this is how you're supposed to respond to your masters, but rather, masters, this is how you're supposed to respond to your servants. Why? Because you're Christians. Our household codes are not the same as the world's. We challenge the world's household codes. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. And so here is the first household code as to do with wives. Now back in 2005, I preached on this passage. I looked at my notes, and I did something that surprised people a lot. I would love to do it today, but I was gone this week, so I couldn't pull it off. What I did is at this point, I asked all the men in the worship service to follow me out of the room. We all left. We had a gymnasium that was all set up with chairs, and so all the men met in the gymnasium, leaving the women alone in the worship center. Then one of the women in our church, she was the head of our counseling center. Her name was Pam. Pam, who was a wonderful Bible teacher, she got up and she addressed the women, and I addressed the men. But we were not together. And here's why we did that. We did it because I have encountered probably a hundred times in my 36 years of being a pastor, Christians who do this all the time were horrible. We read portions of the Bible that were never given to us. When God said, wives, submit to your husbands, he did not say, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. That's not your male. How dare you read mail given by God, not to you. I have heard it so many times, I'm furious. And if you do it to me, I promise you, I will confront you. If you dare ever come into my office, or if you dare ever speak to me, I'm going to be gone so you can get rid of me. If you dare to come into me and said, the wife comes in, my, my husband keeps saying, wife, submit. I, you know, I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to walk right out on you. I'm going to walk out on you because you ought to be walking out. Because that was not your place. You should never, there should never in the human history be any man who says to his wife, wife, submit, because the Bible says so. Never. And if you're one of them, you are in trouble. And there should never, ever be a wife in the history of the world, a Christian wife, who says to her husband, husband, love me. No, no, that way, that was not given to you. That was given to your husband. And so men, we have the responsibility with one another to say all the time to each other, to hold each other accountable. Man, man up, man up. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And women, you better woman up and say to each other, we, we've been called by God to learn how to respect our husband. And guess what? God asks us to do things that are not easy for us, but he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us. If you asked any culture, any time in the history of the world today, right now, anywhere we go, anywhere in the world, you pick it, and you ask this one simple question, which of the two genders is most likely to sacrifice? What would everyone in the history of the world say? Oh, come on, you're sleeping. If you ask anyone in the history of the world, including this day, any culture, any place in the whole world, which of the two genders is most likely to sacrifice? Female. 
female, of course. Of course, it's women. God says, no. no. And who's more selfish? Men. God says, that is not, that may be the norm of society, but that is not my beloved children. I've made you men. I've made you to be strong. I've made you to sacrifice. And by the way, which of the two genders has more problems generally with control? Often female. And God says, one of the things you're going to have difficulty with is control. Because you treat your, your husband like a child. You manipulate him. You disrespect him. Something's going to go off inside and it isn't going to be pretty. And so now God is going to address through the Apostle Paul women. And this is what he says. Now notice the word. It says wives. It doesn't say women. This is where, again, we Christians make such a blunder. We do it all the time. We say, well, this ought to apply to society. Women, submit to your husband. It does not say that. It says wives. And who is he talking to? Not women. He's talking to wives. And what kind of wives? Christian wives. It's one, another one of our problems. We apply this in ways God's word never was intended to be applied. We apply it to a society. A society that doesn't agree with our values, doesn't agree with our Lord. No, that's not what we do. But within our context of people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, Christian wives, arrange yourselves under your husbands. Why would you want to do that? Or how do you do it? Well, as you do to the Lord. Woo, that's a big calling. Why? Why would you want to do that? For the husband has been given a responsibility to love, sacrifice, cherish, even give up his life for you. That's a big job. He needs respect, especially to fulfill that job because it's way bigger than we are. The husband's the head of the wife as Christ. What did Christ do? He died on the cross for us as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the Savior. So now as the church submits to Christ, as the church arranges itself under Jesus, wives should arrange themselves under their husbands and everything. That's your task. That's a toughie. That's really hard. You have to give up control. You have to give up manipulation. You have to give up um, put-downs. Put you have to give up disrespect. Oh, those aren't fun to give up. Those are really pleasant things to do. We love to control. Well, no, we're not on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. And as Christians, we give our lives to arrange ourselves under people so that we can lift them up. And there's no relationship so important is the relationship between a husband and a wife. 
We husbands have this little thing inside of us. It's called a um, respect meter. I know we've got it because you just watch TV. You can see it, especially watch football. You watch football, and at the end of the game, they interview some of the players that played outstandingly well, and they interview them, and they say, why did you play so ferociously? And they said, they didn't respect me. They didn't respect me. We hear that all the time with, with professional athletes. Why? There's something when you sense you're not being respected. You're treated like a little boy. Oh, my husband's just a little boy. No, no, no. That's disrespect. Oh, he needs to be manipulated. No. It's disrespect. We respect people. We, we arrange ourselves under. Why? For the purpose of building them up. Why? Well, because that's what Christ has done for us. That's what it says. But now it's going to come to husbands. And what it says to husbands is much longer and much harder, actually. It's going to say this. Husbands. Now, again, it doesn't say men in general. It's talking about Christian husbands. Love your wives. There's the command. Now, again, we have to be careful that we don't take the definition of our society for love. We take the Bible's definition of love. And what is the Bible's definition of love? There it is, right there. It's embodied by Jesus, and its centerpiece is the cross. That's where it is. You want to know what love looks like? Look at the cross. That's where, where Jesus, out of his love for us as human beings, gave his life to procure salvation, taking the wrath of God, paying for all of our sin on the cross. That's what love looks like. The main synonym for love in the Bible is sacrifice. We sacrifice. Why? We arrange ourselves under. Just like Christ. Can you imagine the God of heaven arranging himself under all of humanity? That's what he did. And that's what we're supposed to do. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, here's why. To make her holy, set apart. Why we husbands sacrifice ourselves for our wives is because we have set apart this one person as the most special person in our whole life. That's a pretty important task. I, th I say it's often interesting that uh, one of the jobs of a parent is to keep going down. When I had my children, I, would, they were, I was number one in their lives. But when my children took spouses, I went down to number two. And now that my children have children, I'm now number three. And if my children someday have grandchildren, I'm down to number four. And I hope I never get to great-grandchildren, because if I do, I'm down to number five. But there's one relationship that it never goes down. It's my wife because she's number one. And God wants us in our marriages. We sacrifice ourselves for one person above all, our spouse, both husbands and wives. And one of the... Now Paul is going to intersect Christian, the church and marriage because they have a lot of things in common. God wants us to be holy. We become holy by um, relationships with each other. That's how God sanctifies or makes us better. There's no thing in all this earth that can make us more mature, apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit, than a marriage. It'll rub off the rough edges or make them worse. Why? 
to present her to himself as a radiant church. Why does Christ sacrifice? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Just so he could show us a model of what sacrifice looks like? No, he wanted a church that was radiant. Us. I've often said, I can spot a good marriage. If you want to spot a good marriage, here's what you look for. Look at the wife. Is she all haggard? and beaten down, and walking around like this all the time, or scared. The way you can see oftentimes a good marriage is look at the wife. Is she blossoming? Is she radiant? Because oftentimes behind that is a man who is sacrificing himself so that she can be a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. That's our task. It's a good one. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, or how? Well, one thing that we're really good at as men is we love our bodies. <laughs> um, we're going to leave in a few minutes now. We're going to go eat. We're going to feed our bodies, and, and they're going to plop in a chair and watch football, and then whatever else you're going to do, you're going to take care of your body today. Now, people like to take this passage of Scripture and say, the first one you've got to love is yourself. But Paul says, oh, no, no, you do love yourself. I know. You pamper your body. The way you pamper your body, do it for her. Do you like your back scratched? She probably does too. Maybe, I don't know, feet, whatever it may be. Um, do you love your body? She is your body. Love her. Why? Oh, it's a good deal. Look at that. Did you see that? He who loves his wife. Oh, you love yourself. There's good benefits. You sacrifice yourself for your wife. It's a good, it's a pretty good deal. It's a really good deal. Now, after all, no one hated his own body, but feeds and we care for it, just as Christ does the church, for we're members of his body. We care for our bodies. Transfer the care we have for our own bodies to our wife. Do you? This one really bugs me. You know what the statistics are? Now, this never happens to anyone at First Baptist. I'm quite sure of this. But we live in a society today in which both men and women are, are employed full-time in many cases. But do you know what the statistics tell us? That you know who's doing almost all the housework? Three guesses. <laughs> of course, the women are doing all the housework. So that means they have to work full-time jobs, just like you're doing, and then when they come home, they have to do all the housework, too. What is that called? I know what that's called. Paganism. That's what that's called. That's called paganism. That is not called Christianity. Christianity is different. Christianity, God made us to sacrifice ourselves for the welfare of our wives. We say, oh no, you need rest. You take care. I, took, I was involved with nine grandchildren this, this week. It was hard. My poor children have to do that now. You think you got a hard job at your work? Okay, give your kids for a while. Try to take care of them. That's a tough job. 
always pulling at you, always wanting something, always fighting. Sacrifice yourself for their well-being. Why? That's how God made a marriage. Now, now the Apostle Paul is going to quote the best-known passage in the Bible. This was quoted by Moses, who quotes God giving it to Adam and Eve, quoted by Jesus in Matthew, and quoted by Paul in Ephesians and other places. This is the main text. Now, if you want a marriage that works, here it is in one verse. For this reason. Well, if you look back in Genesis chapter 2, this reason is God wants a companionship of two people, male and female, in which they can be naked, not just physically, in every way, but without shame. How do you get a companionship of ultimate closeness? Here's how. You leave, you weave, and you cleave. That's what it said, didn't that what it said? A man shall leave his father and mother. You cannot believe how many marriages break down here. And it says a man. You've heard of the Oedipus complex? The tough relationship to break is between a man and his mother. The Bible says when you married, that very day, you walk down that aisle, you take those vows. The priority in your life no longer is your parents. The number one in your life is your spouse. And if you have a blended family, this is a huge problem. Remember, the day you get married, the number one in your life is your spouse, not your own children. And if, that's the greatest gift you can give them. They say the greatest gift you can give to your children is a loving marriage. Leave and then cleave. The word cleave comes from the King James English, but it's simply a word that means like it comes from mud on your boots. And a lot of you wear boots here in Wyoming. You can't get that mud off. You know, you scrape it and all. It's a, that's, that's how marriage is. You can't get the mud off. I mean, well, I didn't mean it quite that way, but um, <laughs> what it means is you stick together. That's a word today that we would mean commitment. See, at the heart of marriage is not love, even though our society would tell us differently. At the heart of marriage are the vows that you take, the commitments you make, the promises. That's the heart of marriage. And then you take these two lives that are so different and weave them together into a tapestry more beautiful than anything you could come up with by yourself. God says, this is how you do it. You leave your father and mother, declaration of independence, you cleave to each other, declaration of dependence on each other, and then interdependence. You weave your two lives together. It's a profound mystery. Talking about Christ and the church, Paul says. And then, so this is some aspects of it. How, what does it look like? What does a husband's loving submission to his wife look like? It looks like you sacrifice. You, you set one apart. It went blank again. Must have some glitch in it. it you set them apart. You, you, you work so that your spouse can blossom. And then the text of Scripture is going to end by saying, here's the summary of it all. Wives, see to it that you respect your husbands and husbands love your wives. There have been some studies done, not by Christians, Studies done of thousands of couples, and when they try, couples that are doing well in their marriages, 
when they tried to boil it down to its com most common essence, they found that what they have in common is respect and sacrificial love. And so, First Baptist Church, one of the greatest gifts we could give to this community is, is pictures of what a good marriage looks like. Maybe one of the reasons that marriage is so messed up in our culture is that we've not been given a good picture, giving them a good picture. If there's anyone who ought to love our spouses, it should be us. Why? Well, we've got God's Word. We've got the Holy Spirit. We've got, we've got the example of Jesus Christ. We have been loved. We have been forgiven. We have got massive resources to be people who should demonstrate to our society what a good marriage looks like. We're people who at the very heart and soul of our lives is Jesus. And Jesus is on the throne of our lives, not me, even though we often live that way. And then because Jesus is at the throne of my life, he is my example and I live my life to please him. And one of the best ways I can do that is by submitting myself to all of us. We serve one another. But especially where that ought to take place is in the home. If we did, wow, things would be quite different. And we would be enormously blessed as a church and we'd be really happy as individuals, because there's nothing better in all this world than a good marriage. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would fill this body with good marriages. Forgive us for our constitutional selfishness. Forgive us for imbibing the the worldview of our culture. Forgive us for not tapping the resources of your Holy Spirit. Forgive us for distorting your word. Forgive us for reading other people's mail. Forgive us for blame shifting as commonly as we do. Oh, Father, we've done many things wrong. But the beauty is your mercies are new every morning because your faithfulness is great. And may this be a, a new day. And may your Holy Spirit empower us to have marriages that work, that are a glory to you and really enhance us as human beings. May this be a church full of women who blossom, men who are strong, sacrificing. And may we honor your name in this community. To that end we pray in Jesus' name, amen.